Hello, you're listening to Track by Track, the Trash Music Podcast, with me, Dan Bull, editor of Trash, which you can find at movetotrash.co.uk, and me, Will Warren, music enthusiast and contributor to Trash. And today we're joined by a special guest, it's Paul Sinclair, the editor of Super Deluxe Edition. Hi, Paul. Hello, hi. Thanks very much for joining us today. Nice to be here. Uh, now, we know, or I know that you are uh, an AHA fan. That's true, yep. Have been since the beginning, 1985. Yep. Yep. And stayed with them throughout many breakups and things like that. Yep, I was there during the um, the wilderness years between 93 and 2000, so I've, I've been holding out for the, you know, the, for the full distance. So on the turntable this week is Hunting High and Low, which has been released a few times, and I've seen a few versions on your website. Of course, on the site, you celebrate the deluxe edition of an album. That's right. I mean, Super Deluxe Edition is all about reissues, box sets, and really celebrating listening to the same music again, you know. And I'm definitely of the mindset that the more Super Deluxe and the more content out there, the better for the fans, whereas some are kind of against that. And clearly that is your mindset as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the thing about AHA is they were they were quite generous with the, the demos and all the extra material that was on the two CD Deluxe. So I think... It was a little bit of a surprise in some ways when they came out with the even super deluxe version. But they managed to dig out some really interesting content. So yeah, I think it's fantastic. And maybe they're even holding some back as well for the next time. Well, exactly. There wasn't a 5.1 surround mix. I think that's the one thing that would be really interesting to hear. Mm. I don't know whether the tapes are lost or, or what. Hopefully we'll see them. Um, we're here today to talk about the debut album. Is the debut a favourite of yours? Um, I think so, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's quite hard to get past the debut as a kind of as an album. When I do, I do love the second album as well. Uh, I think those first two in particular. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think singles-wise, it's unbelievable the record. You know. So for the uninitiated, Aha, um, just to wind things right back to the beginning, Norwegian group formed in 1982. So Morten, Magna, and Pal. I think it's fair to say. Both of you guys, you're big AHA fans. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, one of my top three bands probably, top five certainly of all time. Yeah, and I, I've, I bought all the CD singles and, you know, even in the days when they were not doing that well in the UK. So in the early noughties, you know, they were, they were still quite big in Germany and Italy and places like that. Um, so they'd issue these CD singles and you couldn't get them in the UK. So it was quite good fun collecting all those. Those albums from when they came back, mm. for me, were as good as Hunt, Hunting High and Low and Scoundrel Days, mm. but they just didn't really make much of a dent. Well, I remember um, Morton being on the Graham Norton show, so Graham Norton, that show, when Lifelines, so he, was produ- he was promoting Lifelines, and it was very sad because he, you know, he came on and did his five minutes and got shoved off again, and it was kind of like, it was, it was a, bit, a bit of a sad sort of situation in a way. Yeah. So those are the days when Graham Norton was more, I suppose he was probably more to an he did five minutes and then he was looking at novelty sex toys with yeah. the old ladies in the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You wouldn't see that on BBC One on a Friday night. No, right? exactly. <laughs> it was a bit more kind of wacky. But yeah, he, it felt like he was a bit marginalised, um, Morton, and, you know, and, and which, which kind of was how a ha were in, in, perceived in the UK at that time. Though everyone had forgotten about them, really. Hmm. How dare they? I know, exactly. So, Hunting High and Low was the debut album. It was released on the 1st of June 1985 um, and sold 11 million units worldwide. 
and actually recorded not too far away from us now in Twickenham. Oh, was it really? Yeah. <laughs> that was that's a new fact for me. I guess full disclosure, I you could call me probably more of a casual Aha uh-huh fan, um, but I think I'm in very good company for today's podcast um, for what we're about to listen to. Should we get stuck in? Yes, it's a very good idea. So, side one, track one, this is Take On Me. So that was Take On Me. Who doesn't know that song? It was such a smash, wasn't it, at the time? Well, yeah, Wow, smash. not initially, though. Well, no. And not the first version of the track that was released. So on the Super Deluxe Edition, you can find the original version of that, which is similar, but it doesn't quite have that shine. No. I think what I really like about Take On Me is, is there's so much history to the song, and I think... And also the, the band were very loyal to it. They persevered because I think they knew that there was something there. And it took, I think it, it took them ages. It took them literally you know, three or four years to, to get to the final version. But, you know, there was this kind of perseverance and this knowledge that, you know, when we get there, it's going to be big. It's going to be massive. And, um, yeah, it's really interesting because there's, there's a version on the Super Deluxe called Lesson One, which is like a really early demo from like 82 or something like that and it doesn't have the chorus at all so it doesn't have the take on me but it just has the verses are fairly similar you know but but and they're kind of mucking around and it's not really a properly serious demo there's lots of whooping and funny stuff going on but half the song is there as you say there was this early version you know eventually when it was really because it was released in 1984 the first version and what's really interesting, if, if you compare the 1984 version with the final version, it's very interesting because you can tell the difference between 1984 pop and 1985 pop, you know, okay. just by listening to the two versions. So, because it was Tony Mansfield, I think, the producer of the first one, who produced a lot of the record. But, you know, I was reading in the Super Deluxe, he, he didn't really rate Take On Me, you know. The band actually say he never really got that track. So he never really pushed it and... But they did release his version, but the middle eight on the 1984 version has this weird sort of art of noise, kind of fair light stabs, and it sounds like something out of Trevor Horn. Oh. Sort of studio. <laughs> and it's and it's very un-aha, really, that kind of sound. So they ditched all that for the when they redid it. You know. And thank goodness they did. Well, I know, exactly. But, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a really weird song because it's so familiar, but I never get bored of it. I mean... Likewise, yeah. if I hear it, if I'm playing it, Myself at home, if it comes on shuffle, if I'm at a, mm. uh, a wedding disco, you're probably likely to hear it either time. I'm, it's just, yeah, it's, it's stood the test of time. There have been various covers and, of course, there's that horrible sample from Pitbull, oh, yeah. Christina Aguilera, yeah. which we won't talk too much about that. Yeah. <laughs> give well, that the time well, of day. But there's no guitar in Take On Me. That's one of the things that I wanted to point out. And, you know, Paul was the principal songwriter. He was a guitarist, but there's no guitar in that track, you know. Do you know, I don't think I've ever picked up on that before. <laughs> and the other thing that's interesting about it is that it's the one song on the album that all three of them had to have a writing credit for. And, um, and I, I did actually 
bring this up when I interviewed Paul at the end of last year um, about the orchestral version of Take On Me uh, that recently came out. But, you know, I put it to him that, you know, politically it's, it's been really helpful for the band yeah. to have an equal share of their biggest track because everyone's, you know, going to be quite positive about any projects that have Take On Me. Whereas if he, only he written it, you know, the other two might be a bit, oh, you know, it's always you and Take On Me, isn't it? So, yeah. So I think... I think that's been really helpful probably for sort of you know band dynamics and everyone being kind of friendly towards each other oh good well, and we have to mention the video as well uh, yeah. of course yeah um the pencil sketched animated video which was iconic through the mid 80s into the early 90s there was i think nobody else managed to capture that kind of style and, no. and ambition at the time and that cost a hundred thousand pounds i mean that's that's you know if anyone needs a reminder of like how excessive the 80s were, this was a new band that, you know, Warner's had signed. And they'd had a flop in 1984 with Take On Me. And they still invested £100,000 in a video to, to, you know, to hopefully have a hit with it. So that's, that's how kind of, I'm not sure whether sure is the right word, how sure they were, but they they were maybe just thought well we, there's no going back you know we better just plough a bit of cash into it I guess music video was still relatively new on MTV wasn't it mm. so it was um, yeah that was the medium to if they, if they wanted that song to be a hit maybe rather than touring and promotion making a, the best yeah. video they could might be the I way think forward. so I think so and I think a lot of people sometimes sometimes people say well it was only a hit because the video is so good but I don't agree with that at all I think the video just because it was so amazing, it showcased the song. It, it just gave, like you say, it gave the platform for the song to be heard. Yeah. And I think when everyone heard the song, that was it. It didn't really matter about the video after that. It certainly cleaned up at the 1986 MTV Video Music Awards. I, I can't imagine there was too much competition. <laughs> no. Um, when you look at that and compare it to, uh, I'm sure, what else was, was around at the time. But I think one of the most surprising things about this song for me is it wasn't a UK number one. I know. That's I was going to say that actually. Damn, you've been. <laughs> it was number one everywhere except the UK and Ireland. I think where it got to number two. And everyone, that's one of those ones. It's a great question to catch people out because everyone thinks it got to number one. And of course, do you know who held them off the top spot? Oh, I was, damn, I was going to look at this before. Yeah, likewise. I, <laughs> I was going to make myself sound really knowledgeable and look this up beforehand, but no, I don't actually. Who was it then? It's. I mean, it's quite an iconic song in its own right. Whether it's better than Take On Me is is questionable. Um, the Power of Love by Jennifer Rush. <laughs> mm. I imagine this has sold a lot more copies since, and certainly with taking into account streaming and video plays now. Yeah. Well, yes, let's move on to the next track. This one is Train of Thought. So train of thought there, and I think what's interesting about this being track two, with this album, a lot of people have heard Take On Me, everyone around the world heard Take On Me. This could have very well been their first insight into what else can AHA do. Yeah, I think so. 
I I find it a bit clunky and a bit forced, I must admit. I don't really like that pan pipe sort of riff thing at the beginning and um it's it's a bit of a weird one. It's got a great chorus, but I personally I think the verses are a little bit kind of undeveloped or something, I don't know. I quite like the verses. It reminds me this song reminds me of because it's the one of them are storytelling songs about this guy who likes to have the morning paper crossword solved. It makes me think of The Day Before You Came by ABBA. Yeah, yeah, Obviously that's in the yeah. first person. Yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah, Will, as a uh, an AHA appreciator, <laughs> but maybe not a super fan, uh, what are your thoughts on Train of Thought? Thoughts on Train of Thought? Um, I think coming, oh, very good, coming to it a little bit more casually, I mean, I'm, I enjoy it. I think you're right. I could do, I could live without the pan pipes, mm. um, but I actually quite like the, the the pace to it and the and the beat to it. But um, again, not one I was as familiar with until I started looking into this album more in, in the last week or so, running up to recording today. I did notice on the album artwork or the single artwork the pencil sketched portraits of the three guys yeah. in the band, yeah. very reminiscent <laughs> of um, Take on Me. Yeah, although well, they obviously, you know, that was so successful. I, I imagine the record company just thought, let's milk that as much as we can. But I was actually, I forgot that it was the third single. I, I, I thought it was released as the fourth single after Hunting High and Low. And it was only, I was checking earlier and I, thought, and I remembered it was the third single. And it amazes me that they released it before the title track of the album, because I think that's so much stronger. But that might have been one of those strategic things. They Record companies like to be quite strategic and sort of, you know, have some sort of middling one maybe before they come in with the super duper, you know, ballad. I don't know. Yeah, almost let people think think that that's it. And, yeah, and there's no more good tracks because this isn't obviously as good as the sun always shines on TV or take on me. Therefore, we're done. You know, and then it's like kaboom, surprise, brilliant fourth single. Yeah. And we've we've said that before on, on previous um, episodes where we say, oh, it definitely feels like the second single off an album. Yeah. Or this, or the, yeah. Um, but again, there's something much better, much deeper still yeah. still to come out or still to listen to on the album itself. But the really interesting thing about, and this actually ties in with the whole concept of deluxe editions and super deluxe editions, the really interesting thing that, that came out uh, with Train of Thought was that when you listen to the early demos, um, it's got a riff at the beginning which became a riff used on a later song which is Cold River off of their fourth album so when I first heard it it was just like freaking me out I was like I couldn't work out what I was listening to it's like some weird hybrid of of you know their third single and you know an album track off of their fourth album and this was you know 1982 and, and the track Cold River came out in 1990 so you know, eight years later, he thought, hang on, what about that riff that we didn't put on the beginning of Train of Thought? Shall we use it on this new song? You know, It's interesting that clearly, if it's been going around for eight years or so, uh, Paul, I imagine that was one of Paul's parts, that he clearly yeah. believed in that riff and believed in that track. Yeah. But it hasn't stayed as a Cold River from east of the sun, west of the moon, hasn't particularly stayed as a fan favourite or even doesn't seem a band favourite. You don't often see it on the set nah, lists. I don't think so. I think they played it at the time, but it's one of those ones that... But, but songwriters often do that, don't they? They have this thing in the back of their head that they're just... They're waiting for a time to deploy a riff or a, you know, a, a lyric or a middle eight or something. And they just, they just wait years sometimes, don't they? And then yeah. it's just like, bang, this is the right song. Let me get this one off my chest so I don't have to think about it anymore, you know? 
So, we're into track three, which is the title track of the album itself. This is uh, Hunting High and Low. I'll be hunting high and low. There's no end to the rains of gold. Hunting high and low There's no end to So hunting high and low there, usually the hold your phone torch up in the air moment if you see them live nowadays. A few years ago it might have been hold your lives up in the air, but for health and safety reasons, <laughs> can't advocate that. Yeah. But it's the big ballad moment. Is it a favourite of yours, Paul? Yeah, definitely. It was a big, it was a bigger hit than Train of Thought, so um, got to number five in the UK. Uh, Hunting Highlight. So, funny enough, they remixed it for the um, for the single. So the the album version has synthesised strings on it, but when when it came to doing the single version, Alan Tarney, who they'd got in as a, a spit and polish job on uh, to do. Take On Me and The Sun Always Shines on TV and a few other tracks. They got him to remix it and put proper strings in it. So they'd obviously had quite a bit of success at that point. So they felt like we could afford to spend a bit of money. So it's, so the single version has proper orchestration. Although I always think it sounds fine, the album version, I must admit. I'm not sure I've ever spotted the difference. Yeah, well, there, there is one apparently. So this is one of their biggest tracks. But Will, is this one that you was aware of before? N- not really. I mean... As we've discussed on previous weeks, I'm not too much a fan of a, a ballad. I prefer something a bit um, with a bit more tempo, um, a bit more energy to it. Um, but I love the way this kind of builds up yeah. um, towards the end of the track. And Dan, you were just saying you were thinking about just remembering seeing Coldplay covering it when we were when yeah we were talking just now. So unfortunately, I don't think they've released it as a, an official uh, release. But on YouTube, you can certainly find that they've covered it and. And Coldplay, or certainly Chris Martin, have cited Aha as a huge influence, as have lots of acts over probably around the time when Coldplay were coming up, so Keen and people like that. And I think bands that you might not necessarily have thought they're influenced by Aha, but when you look deeper into Aha songwriting, and particularly away from maybe Take On Me, mm. you realise what they're talking about. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Aha got this, they got this kind of reputation for sort of, you know, attracting kind of teenage girl fans and all that and I think it wasn't necessarily cool to be an a half fan in the, in the kind of latter half of the 80s I don't think but I don't think the music ever reflected that and so I think there are a lot of secret male a half fans you know who are enjoying the music but not necessarily speaking up about it and then later on when they formed bands like Coldplay and Chris <laughs> Martin they could you know it didn't matter anymore they could come out and say because they were already cool because they were in a band <laughs> But the th- I think the thing about Hunting High and Low, the, I think the really important thing about this song is that it put them in the sort of classic songwriter mode, you know, the, the kind of the acoustic guitar, the kind of the, the strings. It, it's the first single where Aha sounded like, you know, they were just classic songwriters, I think, from the classic ilk, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I like how Morton's vocal, it's iconic, and you can tell it's him singing, but it's a very different vocal style to mm-hmm. either probably either take on me or train of thought mm. uh, the video for this track again used some probably quite experimental animation for the time um, where Morton 
became various different animals. Oh yeah, I can't, I can't really remember this video. I but yeah, that video. does sort of ring a bell now that you mention it. Um, and while that track was on, we were talking again about revisiting our love for the video to take on me and how, mm. and how incredible it was, particularly for the time. I, I mentioned seeing it on Saturday morning TV, whether it was going live or whatever, whatever was on at the time. Pre-live and kicking. Probably. Pre, well, way, way <laughs> before. Um, Swap shop. <laughs> Post Edmunds. <laughs> but such as their popularity at the time, the making of this video was featured on Blue Peter. Oh, really? Mm. That's quite interesting. One they made earlier. But I think um, this is one of those songs where, you know, your mum and dad might comment on it and go, oh, that's actually not bad, you know, in the kind of, they might not necessarily like the other stuff, but if they heard that, they might say, oh, yeah, that's actually not too bad, you know. And Hunting High and Low had that kind of appeal, I think, you know, across uh, sort of different generations. But I do want to say that a word on the on, on the lyrics, because I do think... Paul is an amazing, underrated lyricist, and I think all the lyrics on virtually every Harson are amazing, because I just think there's something about that kind of English as a second language turn of phrase, which sort of ABBA had as well. Yes. Um, and, you know, hunting high and low is such a kind of, such a simple, elegant phrase, but it just lingers, and it's just such a great song, and it's a great lyric, and it's the same with Take On Me. The, I think that's why Take On Me never gets boring, because... There's something about the way the phrasing works. It's not normal. It's kind of weird phrasing that goes in and around the chords and the structure. Yeah. I think um, it's similar with Hunting High and Low. So I think it's an amazing track. So let's move on to track four now, which is The Blue Sky. So short but sweet, that was the blue sky. Um, I really like that one. Um, it's, for me, it just feels and sounds a little bit Pet Shop Boys esque. Yes, definitely. You can hear that early Pet Shop Boys, almost like a Pet Shop Boys demo. I feel like it hasn't quite got the the yeah, backing of the Pet Shop Boys, yeah. but I can definitely hear them in there. Which is very interesting because Pet Shop Boys wrote a song for Morton's third solo album about ten years ago. Now I think that was. Oh, okay. Uh, one called Lightning, which was released as a single. I think Radio 2 quite liked it. I can't remember how it goes for the life of me. <laughs> so I shan't hum it. <laughs> I do like... Um, I don't know why it's called The Blue Sky, because it doesn't ever sing The Blue Sky, I don't think. But uh, anyway, um, I do like it. I, I do find all that sort of clickety-clackety stuff in the background a bit annoying. You know, I, I think... I think there's... And, uh, and I think that applies to other tracks on this record. Um, Tony Mansfield... You know who did produce most of it you know i remember reading somewhere he was really into his fair light and he'd kind of go upstairs and say leave me alone and sort of muck around and i i get the feeling he got a bit carried away at times with you know just sort of over programming stuff and i do think there are a few tracks on this record where it didn't need to be quite that fussy you know because the melodies are so strong the lyrics are so strong morton's a beautiful singer um so you don't actually need to sort of throw so much at it. And for me, you know, it's a, it's a great song, it's a lovely lyrics, great melody, but I'm not sure totally about the arrangement. Mm. 
for me, this is one of my favourites on the album. It has been for a while. I can understand what you mean. I do, and going back to your point about Petrol Boys and what I said there, I do think of all the songs in here, it probably feels the most like a demo still. It, it kind of mm. doesn't completely fit the sound of the album, certainly coming after Hunting High and Low as well. But I think it's the lyrics that I really like about this one. Yeah. So the lines about, I'm dying to be different in the coffee shop. It's like he <laughs> foresaw hipsters. Almost. <laughs> yeah. um, and then there's a line about, I'm older than my looks and older than my years. I'm too young to take on my deepest fears, which is something that I've been going through, you know, for the most of my life. <laughs> yeah. um, but you mentioned Morton's a beautiful singer and cannot end this podcast without saying Morton is a beautiful man. Interestingly, obviously, um, posted a pinup. And for some, as you mentioned before, that probably detracted from the music a little bit and maybe deterred some people from from the band. Yeah, I think the band definitely got fed up with that themselves, didn't they? Because it was all about smash hits and being on the cover. And, and I think they felt like they weren't totally in control of their own destiny in a way, because they could control the music, but they couldn't control how they were marketed and, and what was happening you know, out in the, in the media. So I, th- I think that was definitely an issue, you know. Mm. Was it Morton's looks that put you off listening to them for so long? Yeah, I just couldn't, just couldn't face it. I guess being on the front cover of Smash Hits when you're starting out as a group is great initially, but yeah. beyond that, yeah, you want it yeah. to be all about the music and what you do as a songwriter and a performer. And I think Duran Duran had that as well. Um, you know, John Taylor was probably on the girls' walls before Morton Harkett was, and I'm sure there were. Uh, disagreements within the band about that, that yeah. he got the most uh, pages in smash hits uh, but also some people would have not listened to Duran Duran for that reason but the, the Pet Shop Boys are an interesting comparison because their album didn't wasn't didn't come out long after this record and and they had sort of similar-ish hits you know big number one and you know, a few top 10 hits but because you know it was two blokes and they and it was a bit more detached and ironic and all the rest of it um, you know, they never had any of those issues and they just sort of carried on, you know, quite happily where Aha slightly got bogged down in it in a way that wasn't their fault at all, but it was just how it panned out. You know? mm. Neil probably had some control over Smash Hits anyway, having previously yeah, edited it. Yeah, that's true. Maybe he was still editing at that point and thought he was going to, you know, put the spanner in the yeah. <laughs> hopes of Aha's career because the Pet Shop Boys were about to follow close on there. But it is lovely to hear you mention Pet Shop Boys because... As we, uh, as listeners may not know, they are actually probably the influence of the podcast, aren't they? Well, we talked about how inspired we were by what they've done previously with some of their commentary on some of their albums to spur us into wanting to talk more about um, great pop music albums. Um, so maybe we wouldn't be here today without the Petrol Boys. Uh, and out of the twenty odd uh, episodes we've recorded, they've many times there's been a link. Um, and just uh, whether it's by songwriting or association to a lot of artists. Are you sure that's not you just trying to talk about the Pet Shop Boys? <laughs> <laughs> What's a thought? <laughs> but, it's, but it's interesting you were talking about the demo thing because I do think one of the sort of, you could argue it's one of the things that isn't quite so great about this record is, is there is a, quite a bit of difference in the production and the, the kind of quality of production on track. Some like that one is a little do sound a bit demo-ish and others sound quite polished like Take On Me obviously sounds like the finished out article and um, 
And I think that's purely because they just ran out of money, the record company. They spent all that money on the video, they spent money on you know, redoing Take On Me. And I think there was literally kind of no money left. So I think at the end, it, there was probably an acknowledgement it wasn't absolutely perfect, but it's what we're going with and that's it. You know? mm. The budget was locked down, which is yeah. very much like our, the track by track budget. It's non-existent. <laughs> Track number five now, uh, Living a Boy's Adventure Tale. euphoric epic track and has always been I think since the first time I heard it one of my favourite AHA songs ever I, I absolutely love that track and it's just some of the things I love in a great pop song it's it's epic Morton's vocals are incredible some of the notes he hits towards the end of towards the end of it it goes so high it's also just that melancholy to it as well that I just love and I think probably the next track for me is for a similar reason it's really hard to I think what it just evokes feelings yeah that's a lovely way to put it I think and I would like to hear some of those high notes from you at some point <laughs> stand on my foot <laughs> uh, Paul what's your, what's your thoughts I on really that? like it I mean I have got a confession to make I used to call this a living boy's adventure tower and I think yeah. <laughs> as opposed to a dead boy's adventure tower. <laughs> yeah. more morbid now. <laughs> exactly. It took, it took me a while to realise, oh, okay, it's you know, living a boy's adventure tower. But it's got those great chords at the beginning. It's, you know, it's got the right kind of sort of pad synth. It's just the perfect sweet spot. The drums sound really good in this track. And um, yeah, I remember reading Morton Harkett when he was a kid. He was... He was really into nature. I mean, I think he probably still is, but I read an interview, he'd say he'd wander around fields and, you know, ponds and unturned stones and look at newts and all that. And I always think of that when I hear this song, because, you know, that's his little adventure, I suppose, when he was a kid going off and doing that kind of thing. So even though I don't, I'm not sure if he wrote any of the lyrics in this track, but um, yeah, it's really good. It's a great title as well for a song. I love this. Yeah. It is, yeah, it just conjures up an image and, this is one of the rare moments when Paul and Morton write together. Okay. Um, yeah. Don't know if it, you know, if, if it was Morton doing the lyrics because I know mm. in more recent albums on Morton's written tracks, he's wrote the music and someone else has wrote the lyrics. Yeah, so I'm not right. sure what the dynamic was there, but mm. yes, certainly it's just um, mm. it's real storytelling. I think this song. Yeah, and it has that kind of it just has that kind of epic widescreen kind of majesty about it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's it's a song for life, isn't it? You know, you you can imagine yourself as that boy, and just the, talking about the lyrics, I've just had a look. I've been lost in so many places, seek love in so many faces. A change of weather, the rain pours down, my head in hands, pressed to the ground, and where am I supposed to go now? It's beautiful. Mm. I've lost myself there. <laughs> um, a version of this that I absolutely love. So. I'm sure you'll remember Paul a few years ago when Aha did a night at the Royal Albert Hall 
and they played this album and Scoundrel Days in full with an orchestra. I was at that gig. Was you there? Yeah. I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was there. In fact, I took my, um, at the time, seven-year-old daughter to that and because I couldn't find anyone to go with me. Can you believe that? And um, she spent the first half saying, when are we going to get some ice cream? The <laughs> and then she spent the second half saying, when are we going to go home? So that was... <laughs> So I don't think her her appreciation of Aha hadn't quite developed at that point in time. I can certainly relate because I had to drag my mum to the foot of the mountain tour date. And back then we were living up in Nottinghamshire, so it was a drive down to London to the O2. I don't know why I bought tickets to the O2. I think there was a show back home, actually. And did she spend the first half asking, when are we getting an ice cream? And then (laughs) No, she enjoyed some of it because she remembers them uh, first time round. I think she's still got the seven-inch take on me. Uh, tried to steal it from her she won't let me have it I'm, I'm hoping for that in the will but, it's, but that's really interesting though because Grace has since got in to take on me I, mean, I think it gets referenced so much in popular culture it's, she's obviously seen it on some show that she watches or they've played a bit of it in the background and she's started playing some of my vinyl records now you know oh, okay. and um, so she was listening to this album and take on me the other day and um, and I said you do remember that you know I took you to see <laughs> this band She's a bit like, sort of, yeah, sort of vaguely. <laughs> but it was, they, they did release both albums, didn't they, separately on iTunes, and they disappeared quite quickly afterwards. Okay. And frustratingly, I bought the first one, so I've got Hunting High and Low, the live recording with the orchestra, oh, so I, I have this version. They, I didn't know they did that. Okay. I'll, yeah. um, I'll have to bootleg your copy. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. You'd I won't. never do such a thing. No, I wouldn't. Um, Scoundrel Days, I didn't buy at the time for some reason. I must have decided to get one now, one later, and it's disappeared, unfortunately. Mm. So, track six now, um, it's a big one, it's The Sun Always Shines on TV. So I'm going to say it up right up front, that's my favourite Aha track. Okay. I was I would have hedged my bets on Take On Me, actually, I think. That's your favourite of all time? Of all time, yeah. Interesting. How does it fare on your list? I really, really like it. I mean, I often wonder um, you know, what the record company thought in terms of that versus Take On Me as a first single. And I think, even though I really, really, really like The Sun Always Shines on TV, I think... It's a bit more traditional in terms of its structures and the guitar and all that. And I just think they, were, they probably thought we need some, something a little bit different to get people's attention, which is what Take On Me obviously was. And I think they, they played it perfectly, actually, because once Take On Me had been a big hit, they had so many great songs waiting in the wings. And this was a perfect second single. And it did even better than Take On Me in the UK charts. It got to number one. It got to number one. And the reason why we've decided to do this episode this week, uh, or partly, is because on this week in 1986, this song was celebrating its second week at number one. Yeah, okay. One thing I want to point out, and I did get my stopwatch out for this, so don't try and challenge me on it, <laughs> but the, the first verse doesn't start for, until 1 minute 40 into the song. So in this age of 
you know, Spotify where you've got to get, you know, get the song going within 20 seconds or you know, everyone loses interest. They didn't, okay, I know they sing the chorus a bit at the beginning, but still 1.40 before he starts the first verse, that's quite a long time. Isn't it? And that's sort of Xenomania style songwriting, <laughs> which is uh, yeah, someone I mean. who we regularly <laughs> reference. But yeah, it does feel like a very unorthodox pop song. Obviously it did very well, the yeah. fans were pleased with it. I think it's fantastic. I think it's very grandiose is a word that springs to mind when I think of this song. And I would put this, if I was putting a playlist together right now and I put this song on there, I think I would put It's a Sin by Pet Shop Boys next or before. Well, that's the thing. It's funny you you say that because this song, I'm sure it does, ends exactly the same as It's a Sin. So if you listen to the end of this song, the end of It's a Sin where Neil Tennant starts mumbling all that (laughs) kind of religious stuff. I mean, it sounds exactly the same as the end of this song. You, you could do a sort of weird mashup, and I don't think anyone would notice. Horn could quite easily have had a hand in, in this one. Yes, definitely. And I'd love to make that mashup, but I just don't have the ability. <laughs> the other thing I want to point out is that Cliff Richard hated the video to this song because he was on Saturday Superstore or whatever it was called, or whatever the programme would have been in this era. And... Um, they did the video view. I remember this. This is sort of useless bits of information that sticks in your brain. <laughs> but the video to this song was in a church, and Cliff Richard took offence to the fact that you know pop video shouldn't be in churches. So. Oh, so he did he not film his uh, mistletoe and wine? Oh, that was outside well, a church, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Waving his arms around. But um, yeah, so he didn't like it. But there's the other Cliff Richard connection which is that Alan Tarney, who produced a few tracks on this album, including Take On Me, produced um, We Don't Talk Anymore, the Cliff Richards song. Oh. So, um, Which came a bit before, before this one. Yeah. A few years before. Yeah. So, and he also produced, Alan Tarney also produced some Leo Sayer songs as well. So I don't think when, when the management or when Warner said to Aha, well, we're going to bring in Alan Tarney to save the album. <laughs> and, they, and they were like, well, what's he done? And they were like, what's he done? He's only done Cliff Richard and Leo Sayer. <laughs> I don't think they were necessarily overjoyed, but it turned out to be an inspired decision. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. It was definitely Saturday Superstore. Was it? Okay. Um, Thanks and that was definitely finish. where I would have seen Take On Me as well. Oh, okay. So way before Live and Kicking, but definitely after Noel Edmonds' Swap Shop. Even before Fully Booked, if you remember that one. <laughs> yeah, it was a Talking Cow or something, wasn't there? There was. But, but I do think the sort of whole build-up and crescendo at the beginning of this song is second only to um, Money For Nothing in as this kind of 80s big pop power pop moments go I think it's amazing the beginning of this track definitely and and also just the title alone The Sun Always Shines on yeah. TV it's so intriguing isn't it I know time for the next one let's do it uh, so track 7 now and you tell me please don't So that was a new tell me, um, and what a moment to talk about that fantastic album artwork. So it's the band. Morton is front and center, and quite rightly so. Where he should be, where he's used to being. Because uh, as, as we previously said, very good-looking man. Absolutely. Uh, and they're they're resting. They could be in a cafe there. 
I don't know if it's a jukebox or a, a uh, video game machine in the corner. It looks like a bit of movement in the shot. Someone's yeah, it's thrown something. If they'd, had photo, if they'd had Photoshop in that day, that would be an artificial motion blur, <laughs> wouldn't it? But I think it was actually just real time, kind of. I really like, in the top left corner, with where you've got the R, the classic AHA logo, which they've kind of recently gone back to, got a bit of sort of pencil sketch work, which ties in nicely to the, um, the yeah, videos. It does look good. I've never really noticed her that much, this girl at the top on the... Uh, yeah. But I have to say, the thing that jumps out is Morton's very muscly arm right in the centre there. Uh, do you know, I've never spotted that before. He's been working out. <laughs> I think they're in a coffee shop, the one from the Blue Sky, and in the demo of the song, he talks about a waitress and he asks her for a cigarette, and maybe that girl that I've never spotted before either, maybe she is that waitress. So do you think they're trying to storyboard... The blue sky in this cover. Yes, and it never <laughs> has never released. But Paul, you've brought along with you the book version of the book. Yeah, this is the uh, this is the super deluxe edition that I have in my hands. Obviously, no one can see it, which isn't very <laughs> helpful. But um, it does replicate some of the the original album cover. Had some quite nice spot varnishing and bits and you know different elements of it being lifted by the spot varnishing. And they have replicated it here with very nicely on the front of the Super Deluxe Book Edition, which I don't think you can get anymore because I think it went out of print. It's great to see what could have been the front cover from there, which which front cover Will could have been talking about <laughs> to take away from the fact that it didn't really like that song. I quite like that song. It's really short and sweet. It's 1 minute 52, not that I was counting. And yeah, I just think it's very... It's a little ditty almost, <laughs> you wouldn't expect, especially coming straight after the sun which shines on TV. Yeah, I really like it. I mean, it's got a very strong melody, you know. Um, uh, but like we were talking earlier about one of the earlier songs, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background I don't, which I don't really think it needs. I think it's kind of like they play, someone must have played the song and they just thought, well, what can we add to this, you know, because you know, we have to have some 80s sounds and we can't just have, you know, whatever, <laughs> simple guitar, simple piano. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good one. I really like it. And with that mindset of this being potentially overproduced and that not being the band's decision, it's interesting to see that a couple of years ago they released an acoustic album where they reworked a lot of songs. This wasn't one of them, but I would love to see them reworking more songs, not necessarily acoustically, but mm. a lot of bands do go back to, especially nowadays in the age when a greatest hits isn't worth anything because of streaming, yeah, a lot yeah. of bands take that so for the specs yeah. to rework in their greatest days mm. I'd love to see Aha doing that not acoustically but electronically yeah well I think funnily enough I think that song could work really well as an acapella it's so strong the melody yeah you could, he could have just you know Morton could have just sung it and on his own maybe with a little bit of harmony and it, it doesn't need anything because it's such a beautiful sort of melody mm. I agree so we're on to track eight now uh, Love Is Reason This was actually a single. Only in two countries, Norway and the Philippines, and it came as a, out as a single before Take On Me hit the big time. So this is very early. 
Will, you might call it a buzz single. Yeah. If we if it was around today, it yes. would be a buzz track. Well, I wonder, I wonder how long they spent at the meeting deciding on the Philippines as the place that they would release Love Is Reason. <laughs> yeah, that's a really strange decision, isn't it? <laughs> Very specific, targeted release, yeah, or just a real random... I don't know. It's... And I'm afraid I don't have the chart stats to say how well it did I was going to ask how well did it do, but who knows? Well, it probably got to number one in the Philippines. Yeah, it might still be number one there now, before we know. Thoughts on that song, Jens? I don't like Love Is Reason. I think it's probably my least favourite on the album. It has It has that awful kind of kind of worst kind of 80s synth at the beginning, the really squeaky, cheesy one, which they were guilty of, you know, on songs like Touchy a little bit and stuff like that. But the, the song is a bit, is very kind of up in a slightly kind of buttock-clenching way, you know, I think. <laughs> and um, I just don't think it's a very good song, I must admit, you know. Well, I like the <laughs> buttock-clenching way it's up. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think... Probably the reasons why you don't like it, the reasons why I do, um, I just it's quite bouncy, and I like that kind of kind of Euro pop um, yeah, synth to it. It's got that at the end of every. It's really I don't like. It, it's <laughs> Dan, what about you? It's certainly not one of my favourites at all. <laughs> I think as we've gone through the album, we've had some. It all gels together nicely. But I think we've gone from Take On Me, which is great, but upbeat and very poppy. We've gone through Hunting High and Low, a great ballad. We've gone to more almost lush textured sounds with Living A Boy's Adventure Tale. And then this for me is just a cheaper version of Take On Me or something like that. It's just that same style, but not done as well. Interestingly, I've just um, had an update on from the Philippines. <laughs> the B-side to this single was Take On Me. Wow. How crazy is that? That's... That was the same meeting when they decided to release it in the Philippines. They decided, let's not make Take On Me the A-side. Yeah. Let's make Love Is Reason the A-side. That's, uh... that, the person that held that meeting later got fired. I <laughs> hope so. I really hope so. Well, depending on the success or not. Well, yeah. This is a Paul and Mags co-write, so maybe that's... Yeah, maybe it was a great time. song, and then Mags was like, hang on, Paul, I've got a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some synth bits, I've got an idea for the, for the chorus, for the lyrics. Why don't we do this? Yeah. Oh dear. Let's not spend any more time on it and move okay. on now. Uh, this is track number nine, Dream Myself Alive. Following Love Is Reason, this is more of the electronic side of the band in the best possible way. There's lots going on in the mix there. Um, and Will, I did think, knowing that you hadn't really heard the album through, when I listened to it, I did think this is probably the one I wanted Will would like. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. It's like quintessentially... Oh, whistled then. <laughs> quintessentially 80s. Yes. And that, we talked about the Pet Shop Boys, or I mentioned it earlier... But again, this one, very much so, again as well. Yeah, it's very, very... The beginning of this song is extremely Pet Shop Boys. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's got all those sort of hallmarks, little funny little squeaky bits going on. Um, it does sound 
like there's lots of fair like programming going on in it. But I mean, it's a, it's a, it's what a great title for a song, you know. It's a fun, what a fun song. Yes, <laughs> as we often say. Yeah. Um, when we don't kind of when we don't deeply love love a song, but we it's really enjoyable. Uh, the other thing is, it comes after "Love Is Reason," so it, so it's just you're so relieved that you've got a nice kind of you know. <laughs> lovely kind of moody atmospheric song with a really good you know chorus lyric to it that you know kind of more than you know kind of when you compare it to what came before it sounds sounds so good i think yeah definitely it's one of the moodier sounding tracks i remember when during the foot of the mountain tour they played this song so ever since then i don't think i've really noticed this song too much before but ever since then i've thought that well this must be a favorite of the band if they're Mm -hmm. playing it it could, I reckon this could have been a single, you know. I don't know why it was never considered because I think it's very catchy. Mm. And, it, and it is, you know, the Pet Shop Boys were kind of, you know, they were on the scene at this point in time with the same kind of sound, you know. It was that kind of era, wasn't it, where there was only so many makes of synths knocking around and there was only, yeah. there was only so many sort of sounds you could get from the Fairlight. I mean, I know you could sample it, but... So you often got songs that sounded a little bit similar because people were using the presets on the DX7 or whatever, you know. Definitely. Before You're, Stock Aiken and Wharton came along and just made every song sound <laughs> the same on purpose. Yeah, exactly. But it's great having you here, Paul, name-checking these synths because our knowledge of the actual instruments is <laughs> the keyboard and the guitar. We are, and we have to do, I, what's that blippy sound? The, the I, just twirly ma- sound? I just made that up. I don't even know what DX7 is. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on to the last track of the album. Track 10. Here I stand and face the rain. So that was the final track proper. Here I stand and face the rain. What did you think? Well, we look at the album as a whole and we look at the importance of closing an album. So before I give my two penneth, <laughs> Paul, what do you think about that as an album closer? I think it's really good. I think, I mean, album closers have to have that kind of, sort of slightly weird atmospheric kind of leave you kind of lingering with sort of weird thoughts and I think that track does it it's also got my favourite lyric on the whole album which is a very simple line but the let's stay friends forever you know I love the sort of romanticism of that line and it's a very simple phrase but that always kind of um, you know makes me smile so that song as an album closer I, I really like as an album closer particularly the last about a minute and a half it's a little bit more just instrumental in uh, Morton's um, it's just are actually throughout that bit um i don't as a song it's not one of my favorites by any means but i think it's a lovely way to end the album and it almost it's sort of like it teases there's more to come it's not a sudden stop it's just got so much atmosphere i think that's the main thing sometimes songs don't have to be perfect songs with kind of you know verse verse chorus middle eight whatever sometimes if there's enough atmosphere it just doesn't really matter does it and i think this is one of those songs i love i love a long ending a long fade out a long outro to a track and this definitely means the album doesn't end with a whimper mm. and i think what i enjoy most is an album where you've got a kind of really nice 
brace of tracks that lead towards the end, that almost build towards the end of an album, which we've had here on the whole. Yes. Well, for you, certainly. <laughs> yes. <I guess. laughs> so we've reached the end of the album, um, but we're not going to end there. Um, as ever, we have our further listening to come to now. And because this is a super deluxe edition, we are going to have a super deluxe edition of further listening and do two rounds of further listening. Dan, what are the what are the rules um, for for both rounds? So for the first round, we're going to stick with Hunting High and Low and the Super Deluxe Edition, which was released in 2015. This came with, as Paul mentioned earlier, three extra CDs of content. So there are various remixes, outtakes, B-sides, etc. And then for part two, we've left it wide open and it's actually proved to be more difficult than I thought it would be. Just an aha song. An aha song that we would love people to hear perhaps for the first time. So Paul, would love to invite you to go first. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, this was quite a, diff- a difficult one because there's loads of tracks. In fact, there's a ludicrous amount of demos. I'm quite surprised Aha agreed to put as many demos on this Super Deluxe edition as they did because most bands are quite controlling and they don't want you rooting around in their sock drawers. <laughs> but, um, but I'm actually not going to choose one of the many demos of Take On Me or all the various versions. I'm going to choose a B-side. It's the B-side of The Sun Always Shines on TV. And it's a song called Driftwood. And it's, I think it really deserved to be on the album ahead of Love Is Reason, for instance, which, as I said earlier, I'm not really a fan of. And I I think Driftwood's a beautiful song. It's, you know, perfect, aha. It's kind of moody, great lyric. And... um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a shame in a way that it's a B-side. Well, let's have a little listen to it and then we can see if Will agrees that it should have replaced <laughs> Love Is Reason. because it's just sophisticated it's classic aha it sort of hints a little bit at the direction of the uh, the next album mm. well uh, well bearing in mind that's the first time I heard, I've heard that really liked it oh, okay and should it should it have replaced love is reason um I'd have to give it a few more listens but I really I really I really enjoyed I mean there is yeah. a lot of pleasure to be had by the sneaky quality b-side that you know most people don't know about i mean that's the classic music fan thing isn't it yeah you've got to hear the b-side to whatever you know because <laughs> it's so much better than any <laughs> other track they've ever made you know I can imagine someone in the philippines saying that about take on me as the b-side to uh, <laughs> love and reason exactly. so may- maybe sometimes you do look at b-sides through slightly rose tinted spectacles because you know because they're b-sides you know you tend to sort of maybe rate them higher than you should. Because they're, pers- they're more personal. But also I think bands tend to relax with B-sides and I do think you hear that with that song. It sounds like it's not, you know, no one's going to critique it. It's not going to be on the album. We're not, we're not going to, you know, get our heads bashed together if it doesn't do a certain thing for the record label. Mm. And, and I think you can hear that in that song. There's an effortlessness to it. It just flows and it, 
just feels like it was no work at all for the band because they just were well into what they were doing. Yeah. I, I've known about this song, I think, for longer than a lot of our heart songs because uh, my grandma actually had an ex-pub jukebox and so this was on there as the B-sides to the song of shines on TV. But I really, listening to it again a little bit later, it does make me think, as you mentioned before, about it sounds a lot like the second album. I can hear Cry Wolf in there and I can mm. hear a bit of October mm. in there as well, especially yeah. with the, the bits of brass at the end. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. Will? So, I think for me, Take On Me is so beloved and such a, and such a big, memorable song for many people that I want to go back to Lesson One. Ah. Um, original form demo from 1982 for Take On Me. Coming for your love, okay? So here's a kid one. Very raw. I think I like that's. I like the charm about how basic it is. How the vocals are very raw, a little bit screechy, wild at some points, and that keyboard we were just saying almost sounds like a toy keyboard. In yeah. The thing that stands out for me most in that is that. In parts, I think Morton's vocal is quite horrible. Yeah. And I think if I would have heard that as a, either the record company exec or the first, you know, if, if they had released it somehow like bands probably could do nowadays on Twitter or whatever or Instagram, I probably would have thought, oh, that's not for me and I'll leave that. It's funny, lots of classic songs, when you go back to the sort of lineage of them and hear the early versions, you normally say it's all there, you can hear it, but it doesn't really sound like a classic, does it? No. And it, it doesn't really... There's obviously bits of the melody, and but it doesn't sound like a future hit, really, does it? It's great that on this super deluxe edition, they put it out there um, to kind of see the origin and to hear. They've been very generous, I think, with the selection of demos, because there's a lot of stuff there that other artists might have thought, oh, Jesus, I'm not letting that go <laughs> out, you know. I think fans would have bought this version, this super deluxe edition, mm. without as many of these more raw songs on there yeah and i think one thing's for sure you do have to be a fan to you know to sit through demos because even you know more complete demos that sound more like the finished song they still can be tedious if you're not a fan of the band you know i mean there are artists that i'm a bit into you know and i've listened to super deluxe editions and it's just like not interested you know it's, it just sounds really boring and it's that feeling if you're a fan of a group to oh, to have all of that to own a piece of that mm. yeah exactly definitely and, and that's the thing you you know this this aha version it comes in a nice book it sits on the shelf and you can pull it out and you know, do what you want with it yeah Dan you're up so mine actually interestingly enough is a question I've had to ask you a few times Will it's what's that you're doing to yourself in the pouring rain <laughs> <laughs> so 
I think we've said it already. I think that's such a fun song. <laughs> and I think it's also quite unlike a lot of the things on there. I hear a lot of, I hear some of the B-52s, some of Talking Heads, some of even the Buggles. I just think it's so weird. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, maybe Paul came and said, listen to this, guys, what do you think of this? And they were like, we're not going to go in that direction. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a, a kind of failed experiment. Failed, but quirky, interesting, but ultimately, you know, a failed experiment. You know? hmm. I found it, again, not having heard that before, quite a difficult listen, I think, because I'm trying to work out what it is. Yes. Um, the structure is is all over the place and I think I thought a bit at the start you mentioned Video Kill the Radio Star a little bit of that it's the vocal the, isn't it yeah. I'd probably need to listen to it a few more times just to really try and um, I want to understand it yeah <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand <laughs> that's probably what they said to well, Paul in the studio yeah. Paul have you, have you listened to the lyric Dan I mean do they tell you what the person was doing to themselves in the poem is that question ever answered? That's a very good question, and I don't know if that question is ever answered. I've not really, yeah, I think I've been so... Well, I'm sorry, you picked this track. I think you should know the answer to that question. That's such a good point. Um, <laughs> when we release the super, super deluxe edition of this episode, the answer yeah. will be there. Okay. But interestingly, we put it up on during the playback there. It, it's not a demo. It doesn't say it's a demo, and it, mm. but it wasn't a B-side either, so it's just a track that was recorded and finished in some capacity that... It just didn't really know what to do with it. No. And I wonder if ever they thought one day this will make it out into the world on a special edition of the album. Did they have special editions of albums back then? Um, I don't feel like what, they did. Back in 1985, you mean? Yeah, would an album from 1965 have a 20-year... Uh, no, that, that hadn't really been invented, I don't think. No. So, Super Deluxe Edition, it's part two of Further Listening. Once again, Paul, and this is such a difficult question, what is... Maybe not your favourite Aha song, but just an Aha song that you'd love to put out there into the world. Yeah, this was a difficult one. I was tempted to go with The Swing of Things from the second album because um, that's just an amazing track. But in the end, I decided to go for um, a track off their album when they came back from their break from 1993 and then they came back in... Was it 2000? I think it was, wasn't it? Minor Earth, Major Sky, that record. And it was the lead single off that album, um, which is called Summer Moved On. And this is just an incredible track in sort of every single way. Not only one of my favourite AHA songs of all time, that is one of my favourite songs of all time. So thank you for choosing it. <laughs> no, it's, it's an amazing record. I mean, I remember when that came, I remember being very excited um, that AHA were back. And I also remember, bizarrely, one of these little things that used to happen every now and again, but I was in a record shop in Harrogate at the time, and they had this album like a week before it was it come out. And, and, you know, I don't know why they had it early, it didn't make any sense. I'm not even sure I knew, I probably did know Aha had a new album coming out because I bought the single, but 
Um, so that was very exciting. So I got to hear the album a week before anyone else, you know. But um, but yeah, the single it was amazing that single. I remember it getting a mention in like the Sunday Times Culture magazine as a kind of you know just a very small little bit about it. But it it, it resonated enough to get a mention, you know. And mm. I think it, it was very. It, it wasn't a hit because they hadn't, you know. Uh, Harb was kind of nowhere at this point in time. Let's. No one expected them to come back, and and everyone had forgotten about them. But this song, it still was a top forty hit, which I find astonishing, really, because I don't remember that much promotion. I don't remember seeing them do it on TV. I don't remember, but as a fan, I remember buying it and just being blown away. And doesn't doesn't Morton Harkett hold some kind of record for? Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, great. A real fact, actually. <laughs> Twenty point two seconds for the longest note held in a top forty pop song. Yeah. I've tried and failed on many occasions <laughs> to do that in the shower. When I saw Aha during the I think was during the foot of the mountain tour as mentioned earlier, and they did this, they sang it, and, and mm. I kind of listened to see is he going to hold that note, and he did. Mm. But then I saw them on the Casting Steel tour when they mm. kind of came back again after five years or so away. They didn't even play this song, which was a huge shock. You know, it was it was a hit across mm. Europe, a massive hit across Europe, and a, a bit of a hit here. And then, of course, they brought it back with the acoustic album a couple of years ago, but he doesn't hold the note anymore, no. sadly. No. But that's natural with age. We talked about Debbie Harry a few weeks ago. They, you can't expect someone having gone through life and, you know, just their bodies aging. You know, you can't hold a 20.2 second note anymore. I mean, his voice is still incredible given his age and all that. I mean, it's, it's, he still can hit notes that he's got no right to hit, really. Mm. He can still do Take On Me. Yeah, exactly. For me, as a, you know, I was obviously not a super fan, but I was aware I, when this song, when they came back and this when this track came out, mm. I think, what year, what year were we talking here? 2000. So I'm very much into music and pop music at this point. So I think it was something that was definitely... I enjoyed it at the time even if it didn't commercially do very well it's a really strong album Minor Earth Major Sky and it's also really well produced it's it's kind of they just hit the sweet spot with that record I think for me it sounds very Willie Morbit yeah the, the production of that one yeah so Will what's your second further listening choice so I've gone ahead to 2009 uh, to Foot of the Mountain the album they released in that year and riding the crest. So riding the crest there uh, from Foot of the Mountain, I think regular listeners will know I love something with um, a real beat to it and a great electronic production. And I think Dan, you recommend as not being a a, a really passionate Aha fan, you recommended that to me probably a couple of years ago now. Yeah, the whole album I think is much more your cup of tea compared to Minor Earth, Major Sky, or Lifelines or analog but this one they really returned to the electronic roots and that's why i thought you'd like this i do remember reading that paul was influenced by arcade fire for this song and i think you can really hear it i didn't hear it beforehand and then after 
after reading that, I thought, I can see what he was doing. Yeah, it does have that feel to it. I, I quite like it. I must admit, this album, I've never totally kind of, I don't know, there's something about this record. I, I do like the fact that they went a bit more electro and a bit more keyboards and stuff. But um, yeah, I've never really properly got to grips with this record, I don't think. We mentioned earlier about how, as a band, they probably worked very differently. And in those early days, Hunting High and Low, they would have been all together in the studio and writing. And I think at this point in the career, they probably were very much writing separately, recording in different continents. Yeah. And maybe that's why it doesn't feel like as, as a fully formed album. Yeah, I think that could be the case. And they, it was after this record that they chose to split up, wasn't it? So Yes, yeah. for a couple of years. <laughs> Until they came back again, yeah. Yeah, but thankfully for me, and I'm sure for you, and now will for you as well as a new AHA fan, hopefully, um, <laughs> it's a great decision. And there are rumours that there are more, that there might be more to come from them, but we'll have to wait. Do you think see. those? Do you think those rumours will come true? Um, I don't know really. I think it's. It sounds like they might debut some new material later on in the year when they do their live dates, but whether that will translate into actual recordings. I mean, I think the problem is, unless they've got enough songs to put out a new album, what do you do with two or half songs? I mean, mm. you know, do you, do you release a seven-inch single? I mean, it's, there's not much you can do other than shove them up on um, Spotify. Yeah. And, and if they have got enough songs for an album, then, you know, putting out an album entails trudging around promoting it and you know being in the same room at the same time yeah. all that kind of stuff so you know who knows if they want to do that so Dan this is the final track on this episode so what's it going to be from you again it, it's Mission Impossible and this is by no means my favourite aha song ever but for some reason I, to be quite honest I was going I was umming and ahhing whether to pick Summer Moved On uh, I was umming and ahhing earlier on whether to pick The Swing of Things by Paul, but I've gone for this one and I'll explain why afterwards. This one is She's Humming a Tune. But her mind is racing over and over again. And I don't suppose she knows everything that's bound to happen, how, when a story goes, and I The highlight of this album because it in some ways I think this sounds a little bit like all of Aha it sounds the acoustic bit you could imagine that's going to be coming in with a bit of a ballad from the analog era and then it all of a sudden becomes this huge synthy number that's quite grand and quite epic which could have been one of the demos even from the hunting high and low sessions maybe um, yeah I, I really like it it's, it's kind of quite breezy and sort of sing along isn't it and it's I love all the synth stuff at the end, the big kind of, it's almost like Pink Floyd-esque, the kind of synth, the outro bit. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say it's my favourite track on the Cast in Steel album, because I think that's probably under the makeup or um, maybe the title track. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I do quite like it. It's a good song. Well, uh, similar to Paul, I love the, the kind of the, the, at the end of it, the synth that runs through it and how I think I was not having heard it before a little bit sceptical at first yeah. but then it really it kicks off doesn't it and then takes you out what a great track to end on actually from today's 
Oh, good. I'm glad you agree. And I do believe, actually, one of the reasons I picked this is I did read that this song had been in Paul's notebook for many, many years, even going back to the 80s days. So kind of ties the... Uh, and it was released on their most recent album, Casting Steel, from 2015. So kind of ties together the episode nicely. And we're out of time. We are. So, Paul, thank you very much for thank you. joining You're us today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I've had a great time. I love talking about Aha. Well, good, because there's plenty more albums out there. <laughs> and if our listeners want to find out a little bit more about your site, Super Deluxe Edition, how can they find well, out? Well, it's very easy because the URL is superdeluxeedition.com and the website is all about box sets and reissues and news reviews and unboxing videos and all that kind of stuff. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's actually SD Edition on Twitter. And um, let us know what you thought of today's podcast as ever, at Move to Trash UK on Instagram and on Twitter. And with the hashtag Track by Track. And please do, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review, that's always welcomed. And we are now on Spotify as well. New for 2019. Yes. And Dan, we carry on next week. Can you give us a hint, a tease, what's to come next week? I can. Sadly, Paul won't be with us, afraid to say. But Sorry. the show does have to go on. And next week we're going to be going back to New York for, similarly actually to Aha, a band that split up and within five years realised they had more to make. So they released the album we're going to talk about a couple of years ago to huge critical success. To give anything else away would be uh, too much. So thank you for listening. Um, until next time, I've been Morton Harkett. I've been Mags. And I've been Paul Wachtar Savoy. <laughs> Bye-bye. Goodbye.